You're listening to Japanese Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington. Hi, everyone. Welcome to JBC Connect. This is a new episode, and I'm happy to have Jessica Valdez with us. And for those of the JBC community, you know that uh, Jessica is the chair of the Outreach Committee, but she also wears a lot of hats,、uh, doing a lot of things outside of church as well. And so I thought it'd be really worth、um, learning a bit more about that. So, Before we get into other things, I thought it'd be nice to just、uh, introduce yourself, Jessica, for folks who might not know you very well.、Um, so, hey, just briefly, if you could tell us like, who's Jessica, what does she do, I think that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So, I'm Jessica.、Um, I,、uh, yeah, like Pastor Sam said, I wear multiple hats.、Um, one of the more, I guess,、um, prominent hats I wear is I'm a community organizer.、Um, I organize a lot with the local Filipino community here.、Um, I also work at a health and social services organization called Asian Counseling and Referral Service.、Um, we're based in South Seattle. And then、um, I, I'm actually not from Washington.、Uh, I came up here to get my master's in social work from the University of Washington.、Um, like, oh gosh, like. Six years ago. Wow, I moved up here six years ago,、um, but I was born and raised in Hawaii.、Um, but yeah, I, I love Seattle, so I ended up staying here afterwards. Yeah, no, that's great. And you know,、um, tell us a bit about Hawaii, because like, you know, I have some friends、um, from Hawaii and、uh, just a unique cultural experience of like growing up in such a diverse place and like maybe how you know, that affected, you know. Your upbringing and like what brought you to Seattle and such? Yeah.、Um, yeah. Growing up in Hawaii, I think、um, maybe not the typical like Asian American experience that maybe folks here in the mainland had, but because just because、um, most people looked like me growing up.、Um, so、uh, I think coming to Seattle,、um, There's kind of like a rediscovery or relearning about what it meant to be Asian American and navigate um, um, a place where I'm not the majority necessarily. Um, uh, I think that a lot of that、um, also kind of feeds into just、um, why I, I do community organizing too with the Filipino community,、um, just um, finding. Um, I guess not just finding people who look like me or who share the same like. General history as me, but、um, just like I guess that kind of feel the the、um, the way I found connection or the way I ended up staying in Seattle too.、Um, so、uh, yeah, I guess、uh, it's been an interesting experience, I guess. I don't know、mm-hmm. what else to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that's great. And And then also, like your, your background is, is diverse as well, right? I mean, your, your family is from all over.、Um, I thought it'd be interesting for the, some of the listeners to know a bit about that as well. Yeah.、Um, so I am、um, part Japanese, part Filipino.、Uh, my mom is full Japanese. My dad is half and half.、Um, they met while、um, in college at、um, University of Hawaii in Manoa.、Um, And both of their families, too,、um, uh, were military families. So they ended up traveling around a lot, being stationed in different places around the world before landing in Hawaii.、Um, on my mom's side,、um, her paternal side of the family actually um, uh, were um, 
like in the cannery business um, in like Monterey area um, before they were incarcerated um, during World War II. Um, but eventually my mom's dad ended up meeting um, my grandma while stationed in Japan um, and I guess fell in love and got married. Um, but on my dad's side, um, his dad, who's the one who's Filipino, um, grew up kind of between Hawaii and the Philippines um, before also being stationed in Japan um, and meeting my grandma on my dad's side there. Um, yeah, so very similar, I guess, somewhat similar um, um, uh, ways of growing up or ways of like their parents meeting. So maybe that's part of the reason why my, my parents ended up like finding a connection too, just having that similarity. I don't know, I can't speak for them, but um, just a theory. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I find this really interesting about your uh, Japanese Filipino connection because um, historically, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pain and tension between like Japan and the Philippines. And I think even about my own background, right? Uh, being Korean um, and then having lived in Japan for, number of years and then um having studied japanese culture and korean culture like i feel like i'm kind of in between uh these two worlds right that yeah. are both beautiful have so many things like so many rich things to share but then have so much pain in them like did you ever feel that tension because like you know you you literally like within your own being you hold these two cultures together in a you know a wonderful beautiful way have you ever felt like that was something you had to negotiate um, yeah, up. totally. Um, I think more so now, um, like growing up, I think I, I actually felt more connected to my Japanese side just because that's um, like the practice, the cultural like events and, and um, the language was more accessible, I think, for me. Um, um, like, I think the only exposure I had to being Filipino was the food that sometimes my grandma would make for family gatherings. Um, so it actually wasn't until moving to Seattle and getting involved in community organizing that I um, started to learn more about um, the Filipino side of, of my identity. Um, and so I'm still, I think I'm still in a place of learning how to um, like navigate being both um, and kind of internalizing the history that both cultures sh uh, share for better or for worse. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's taken a lot of processing. I'm I'm thinking it's still going to take more processing to to kind of um, feel grounded in both, um, but also like celebrate both um, um, and and take pride in both too. Um, but yeah, I I think there yeah there's definitely been um, some painful history between um, the Japanese and Filipino sides, and so. Um, I'm basically just still learning what that means going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's really great because like, I feel like, you know, folks who have like what I call like um, living in two painful stories that are like kind of like uh, rubbing up against each other. Sometimes like I feel like in America, it's kind of like choose the one story, right? You have to choose this story or that story, yeah. right? Like choose the American story or your own like family story. And I wonder if like there is a place for folks like us who um, are comfortable or like have always grown up with multiple stories in our lives like and to realize like even if they're in tension or even in opposition to each other you don't necessarily have to destroy one over the other like yeah um, in fact even like holding them together in that tension and that uneasiness can actually 
be very powerful and like redemptive. Um, I think, I, I feel like if more people could kind of embrace that and talk about like how you did, like, you know, I'm still figuring it out. Like I'm still embracing it. And like, that's, that's a good answer, you know, and to be okay with that. I think a lot of people in the country right now could really benefit from hearing that because mm. um, I think of when I was talking to some uh, Sansei, like when they were raised by Nisei, who after the interment, like their parents told them like, look, um, just jettison anything Japanese because it's going to get you in trouble, you know? Yeah. And they felt like they had to be super like American, whatever that meant, you know? Mm. But that meant just be like white American, don't be Japanese. And so I feel like there's something really powerful about trying to figure out how to, you know, hold together difficult stories. And um, I, think, I think Hawaii is a beautiful place to show like that can be done. Um, a lot of people are doing that. And so I, I think that's really great. Um, there's so much more I could say about that, but maybe we can move on. <laughs> I, I would love to hear more about like, what, what brought you into the work of uh, social work? And uh, what yeah. was like your conviction or like, what's your story behind that? Yeah, um, social work was not my first um, choice, I think, or the first idea that came to mind when I was thinking about um, what to study or what, to, what kind of field to go into. My first inclination was actually music. Um, uh, and so I think I was looking at programs where I could study music um, more. I actually ended up not studying music though. Um, I ended up moving to Japan to um, attend Waseda University in Tokyo. Um, and I think um, uh, with the specific international student program that they had, I ended up um, kind of leaning more towards international business um, in that field. Uh, I was planning to get my bachelor's there, um, stay the whole four years, and I don't know, maybe even more than four years. Um, but after my first semester finished, um, that's when the big tsunami hit in, in Fukushima in northern uh, Japan. Um, there was the earthquake, there was like the, the reactors were unstable. Um, and so, yeah, the whole situation felt unsafe, I think. So I ended up just moving back to Hawaii. Um, I think that 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 uh, that big uh, natural disaster kind of like sparked an interest, though, in just learning, um, like uh, how to support people who are holding like a lot of trauma or tragedy from things like that. Um, just because, yeah, the the tsunami and the earthquake was so devastating, and even today. Um, recovery hasn't been full 100%. There are still people who are recovering and still people um, kind of learning how to navigate this new world um, that they're living in up there. Um, so I think I wanted to learn more about like, um, uh, like what does it mean to, to support people in, in holding things like that? Um, so I think going to Hawaii Pacific University after that, um, my first inclination was, okay, maybe I'll study like sociology or psychology or anthropology. So um, more theory-based, I guess. Um, I realized though that um, like uh, I wanted to learn how to apply that theory. So ended up moving into social work, which is definitely more, I think had more practical um, skills to teach. Uh, um, yeah, so I, I guess that's 
my journey to social work. I'm not exactly a social worker, but um, I think the the knowledge um, has been really helpful in, in the work that I do now. Um, and just in the ways that I even do community organizing or do things outside of my work at um, ACRS, it's been really, um, it's been really helpful. I feel like everyone should study social work. I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm yeah. just biased. <laughs> no, I mean, and you know, actually that's, I'm glad you corrected me in that because um, when I mean social work, I meant it more in like just a very broad term of like um, mm. social support systems or like working like in the community, I guess that's how I understand like social work. But I realize it's also a very specific term like social worker, right? With um, mm -hmm. like how they negotiate like caseloads and stuff like that. Um, but this is actually where I want to go. So I'm really interested in like, um, tell us a bit more about like the work that you're doing with the, the nonprofits um, that you're involved in and um, how you're working in the community right now. Yeah, so um, so I, like I said before, I work at ACRS. Um, my role is um, actually more project-based. So um, I think during my time at ACRS, I've been there for almost, oh, almost uh, five years. Um, but it's kind of ranged from um, like earlier this year, it was focused on like supporting with census um, and making sure that our communities are counted um, because the census is just, uh, it's a, it's a one-time thing that impacts the long-term. So um, a lot of my work was focused on that. Um, I've also supported with like um, our, our civic engagement programs too and, and advocacy to um, ensure that the needs of our communities are, are heard and met um, on different levels. Um, a lot of my work also has to do around like grant writing and making sure that the the wide array of services that ACRS provides um, can continue to be provided um, like financially to um, in that we're um, able to provide services to those who need them the most. Um, yeah, so it's kind of I feel like it's been a bit of everything. <laughs> um, um, and it's been it's kind of cool. I like that I'm able to um, work with just different departments and programs within the agency to kind of get a feel for maybe like the 20 to 30,000 foot level um, view of what ACRS does and what we strive to, like our values that we strive to live out. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a, not your typical, I guess, uh, uh, role at a, at a nonprofit agency. I'm not sure if there are other agencies who have a role like this, but mm. it's been good so far. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to suit your personality because you have so many like diverse talents and like you're interested in many different things. So like this kind of role really requires someone who can draw from a lot of different worlds and like kind of bring them all together. So that makes sense that you're in such a role. Um, so for the for the folks who might not know too much about ACRS, could you like just very briefly say like what is ACRS about then like to help us just kind of figure out? Yeah, so ACRS um, was actually born out of a grassroots effort um, back in 1973, so about 47 years ago, um, and uh, it came about um, in response to like continued patterns of misdiagnosis and inappropriate care for um, the local Asian Pacific Islander community. Um, not that um, there was malicious intent behind it, um, but it's just that the, the provi health providers at the time just didn't have 
um, the, the needed cultural linguistic um, like knowledge or understanding to be able to really understand the needs of the communities that they were serving, um, specifically the Asian Pacific Islander communities. And so um, I think there were a group of like mental health providers and even students from the School of Social Work at um, University of Washington who came together to, to um, provide an alternative that was culturally um, and linguistically um, relevant and meaningful to the Asian Pacific Islander community. And so flash forward 47 years later, um, we have like, I think over 300 staff, over 700 employees who support our work. And that work ranges from like behavioral health services to um, food and nutrition. We have a food bank in the Seattle Chinatown area. Um, to like employment, to like recovery from addiction, um, to youth development programs and civic engagement advocacy. So we've grown quite a bit um, in these last almost five decades. Um, and I think we serve, now I think we're serving over 30,000 community members, um, mostly in the King County area, but I think we have um, folks we support in Snohomish and Pierce counties too. Um, yeah, so uh, try to do a lot, <laughs> all um, like with the value of like um, uplifting the needs and, and um, the specific cultural linguistic needs of the Asian Pacific Islander community. And not that we're only restricted to serving Asian Pacific Islanders, like our services are welcome to anyone who could make use of them. Um, it's just that we are, I think um, we're just more well equipped to serve um, the Asian Pacific Islander community. Like I think because we have like staff who collectively speak 40 languages and dialects, most of which are Asian Pacific Islander and just are from the same like immigration stories or backgrounds and yeah. can relate on that, on that level with our clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that's just uh, amazing, just the depth and the complexity of it. I think this is something that, you know, I, I struggle with too, like when we say the term like Asian Pacific Islander, like we're including a lot, a lot of people, you know? Um, yes. And sometimes like, you know, we talk about different issues like, oh, black community, API community, blah, blah, blah. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's just saying API community. It's not just like this one um, niche kind of thing like it's it's mm -hmm. very diverse and it's complicated in itself so like you just mentioned like all the languages and all the cultures you have on staff but there's even more than that right I mean just talking to my um, Burma friends like it's so complicated like um, the dialects um, the backgrounds the cultures uh, even though like geographically it might not be as large um, there's a lot going on so I, I feel like um, it's wonderful to have some kind of service that recognizes uh, those differences and those nuances and um, can reach out to them effectively. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I know from my own Korean background, like I would often feel like my parents would be like, they wouldn't want to reach out to resources in the community because they just mm -hmm. couldn't trust them because like they felt like the, when they were offered resources, they're like, yeah, they're offering it for people. They don't know like Korean people, like they don't know what we mm -hmm. need. So I don't want to ask them, you know, um, cause they don't get it, you know, and like what they're giving, like I can't even use anyways, you know? Mm -hmm. And I felt when I'd work with like my friends of like, who are Chinese American, like they'd have a similar story with their parents as well. So to hear like there are these mediating 
um, bodies, like what ACRS does, saying like, hey, you know, we know that actually you're different, and these are actually ways that can really help you. Uh, it's just a lot more effective, and it can just win a lot more trust in the community. Um, I think when we do like social services and just blanket everyone, oh, you're all going through the same thing, right? You're all, you know, poor in the same way, or you're all homeless in the same way, or you're all needing education in the same way. It's like we're really doing a disservice, I think. Right. So yeah. I, I think it's it's really important that ACRS there is and it's such an ambitious and huge task that you have to face, but it's really worth doing it. And I'm just glad that you've all been so faithful through all these years. Um what do you find, because you do have like that huge, like I guess you said that 30,000 foot view. Um, what do you feel is like one of the unique challenges of um, what you do at ACRS in Seattle? Like working with the API community in Seattle, um, what do you feel like is one of the big challenges that you face? I mean, it doesn't have to be the defining one, but like one of the big challenges that you face. Mm. Like, so me and my role or just ACRS in general or? Uh, it could be either or both, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. if you're appropriate. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of going towards ACRS in general. I think right. um, like in this time where we're in a global pandemic um, and mm -hmm. we're not able to really um, see our community members or clients in the ways that we normally would. Um, been seeing that that's been a challenge, a really big challenge for us to overcome. Um, many of our community members and clients um, uh, are recent or new immigrants to this country. And so um, like with that comes challenges of learning how to navigate systems to get basic needs met and, um, uh, and also just like learning how to connect with others too, um, like in a different language and, and um, people who don't have the same cultural background as, as you might have. And um, yeah, and now compounded by this pandemic where um, it's not as safe for us to meet physically um, as often or the way that we used to before. Um, I know we've been trying to find um, alternatives to communicating with folks like through video call or, or um, um, yeah like phone calls instead of meeting in person and that's even been challenging too like many of our clients and community members have very low if any digital literacy and so mm -hmm. um, yeah it's I think this pandemic has been really um, in ways very isolating for even more so like um, this, I think the immigration experience itself is already can be pretty isolating in this country and to, to have to navigate it during a time where um, yeah where it's it's harder to connect with people um, just in general I think pose has been posing a very um, unique challenge for us um, to to navigate um, uh, but we're trying. <laughs> yeah, Still I mean, it's, it really requires like a whole new world of creativity, right? Because yeah. the challenge is so hard. I think you hit on something that I feel pastoring JBC right now about the whole issue of accessibility, right? Um, and you mentioned about digital literacy. Like, 
it really feels like in this world where we're all like isolated and distant is that digital literacy is more important than ever. But I'm finding like, if you're not digitally literate, then you won't be accessing the resources you need, right? And a lot of digital literacy is dependent on technology, which is money, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, and if you're well off, like, you know, um, and you have access to technology, then not a problem. But a lot of the people that we're serving, they might not have the resources to get the technology and then to get the, li- the literacy. And so it's like, um, I think this is a real challenging time. Like, I think people who have resources need to think long and hard about like, what are the things that we're taking for granted? Like how we can, like, you know, we're doing a Zoom call right now for this interview. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people can't do that. And so how do we um, make sure that people have access to the resources they need? Because the resources, like, I feel like there's some resources out there that are sitting there for people, but they just don't know how to get connected to it or get mm-hmm. in touch with it. And uh, that's just a really painful thing. And I, I feel like that's something that, you know, nonprofits like, like ACRS and like even JBC, like we really have to think long and hard about and get creative. How are we going to empower people to get access? It's a, it's a really tricky thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like for nonprofits, especially so much of our work is like people-based. And so when we are separated, you know, from people, like how do we do like our fundamental work, right? Because it's all about people um, and connecting with people. So if they can't come into our offices, they can't come into our building. Um, how do we do this? And so mm-hmm. I think we're all in it together. We're all struggling. And I'm just really praying that um, God would just bless us with extra levels of creativity and uh, going yeah. forward. <laughs> Definitely. Um, we, yeah. yeah, we have some plans at JBC too. Like we're, we're trying to start up a, a support program to get um, seniors or others who aren't digitally literate to get access to technology and to learn about that. But, um, you know, it's just a small step, but, you know, we're hoping to do more of that. And for those of you who are listening, if you have someone who has needs like that, uh, let us know, because Mm -hmm. I feel like right now we can do so much good for people if we can just get them connected to the world out there. So um, now I'm going to just shift gears a bit. And, you know, I, I, this is, this topic is so important to actually kind of want to swing back to you and, um, uh, your partner, Marks, uh, about this, uh, just about the Filipino community and awareness. But um, I just want to maybe just talk very briefly about it and then to kind of bookmark it because I, I do want to talk about it um, in detail more because it's such an important issue with the, uh, the Asian American community. But tell us a bit about like um, your work with the Filipino community and your passion about it and um, some of the issues that you're trying to bring awareness to. Yeah, sure. So um, currently I organize with um, Gabriela Seattle, which is um, an an overseas chapter of Gabriela in the Philippines um, um, and is part of the National Democratic Movement in the Philippines, um, but takes on kind of the women's perspective of that work. So um, um, yeah, women's rights, yeah, and the woman, I guess the woman and family experience too of, of um, what it means to live in a, in a, in a, a country that really supports the needs of, of women and families. Um, I've been organizing with Gabriella for 
four, oh no, five years, <laughs> time flies. Um, but um, yeah, within that too, um, uh, I have also been supporting with um, another, um, I guess, uh, area of organizing called the Malaya Movement. Um, and the Malaya Movement is a um, um, kind of like a, it's a US-based movement um, to call for an end to um, like fascism, growing fascism in the Philippines. So things like continued extrajudicial killings of people, particularly the poor um, through things that have been happening like the drug war in the Philippines. Um, and even now this, um, this militarized response that the Filipino government is having in um, to, to navigate COVID um, and this pandemic. Um, it has not been a health-centered uh, uh, approach. It's been very militarized and um, has led to many um, like terrorizing and, and killings of people um, who are just trying to survive. Um, so um, um, it's also, Malaya movement also calls for true genuine, genuine democracy. Um, because we're also seeing um, like suppression of, of um, like freedom of the press um, in the Philippines. There's been targeting of um, community organizers, even like me or, or like Gabriela folks in the Philippines, um, just for speaking out against the current policies of the Filipino government. Um, and so, yeah, um, I, I feel like I could go on and on and I would love to have Marks with me too to talk more about yeah. this. But um, yeah, essentially we are fighting for um, the dignity and human rights of the Filipino people, regardless of class um, and regardless of sector um, and for true national democracy for the Philippines, one that supports um, the, the genuine, the genuinely supports the needs, um, the basic needs of the Filipino people um, and does not um, suppress or oppress the, the Filipino people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but, I mean, that's just, it's wonderful. And like, I, I felt like it was just important to introduce that, at least for this podcast, because it, it helps bring awareness is that, um, you know, every, every culture, every country, like we all have these like unique social issues that um, are very specific, but in another way, if you zoom back, it's like these issues are very relevant to anyone of any background because uh, it's all about, um, you know, protecting just the dignity of like being made in God's image, um, caring for people, whatever their background. And it, it comes out in a lot of different ways. Like obviously, for instance, you know, the work that Gabriella is doing is very um, specific, but I think anyone who cares about the rights of humans uh, that this is something we should be aware of. And I think the other thing that's interesting too is that, um, I mean, a lot of people lament how we're being separated and socially distant, but it's kind of making us realize because of technology, like the plus side of technology, is that we're being so connected to all these new stories that we maybe not would never have known about before. Mm -hmm. And we can actually participate in now because um, we're so much more a global village because we have better communication uh, methods like um, so like the fact that you know we can be up to date on all these issues like in the Philippines now it's like it's amazing like it's much easier to have that information flowing in 
and um, and it's a lot uh, more available to people now to keep power accountable because we know more. You know, we're not just held in the dark by like one information stream. Uh, yeah. It's like deeply controlled by someone, and so. I think it's a really exciting time. I think it's a scary time because like, you know, maybe the ways that we connect um, are being all obliterated, but then we're also not realizing, oh, there's all these different ways we can connect with people and we don't have to be past it in the COVID time. Like we actually have much more access to the world than we ever have before, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, this isn't an excuse like in times of isolation to be indifferent to the, the world around us. So um, a lot of why, like, I want to bring you on to the podcast is just make people aware is that, hey, there's a lot out there that um, you can be, you can investigate, you know, you can call into question. Um, there's a lot of things you can do to empower people um, to ask the hard questions, um, to hold leaders accountable. So I'm just really thankful for the fact that you're just a living example of that. You know, you're doing that in your own life. Um, you've done it through your studies. Um, you've done it through your, your background in Hawaii. So I'm just really thankful for all that you're doing. And I'm hoping that um, we can have another conversation soon to talk more about those other issues. But I just kind of want to give people sort of a foretaste of that, just expanding the world of JBC. Because um, you are definitely an important member of JBC. And uh, this is what JBC is about. And um, I'm really thankful as a pastor that we have folks like you and others in our congregation that really expand us in that way. So um, thank you so much, Jessica, for your time, uh, which is precious, I know. And um, I'm looking forward to talking to you again. So thank you very much. Thank you so much.